In the history of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the greatest Passover after the time of the judges occurred in 622 B.C. This was after a span of about 400 years, and it was brought about by a 26-year-old king. To understand how significant was this Passover, we need to go back in time to the 600s B.C., because he brought about a reformation during a very dangerous time. Our story today concerns a Judahite king who ignited the last reformation in the kingdom of Judah. What influence can a young person have upon the course of national affairs? Can a young person change the nation for good in his or her lifetime? Such a person did. And he's the hero that we will highlight today. The houses of Israel and Judah had few righteous kings. When such monarchs arose, the Bible highlights their story in bold detail. And these few men had such courage that they changed the course of history. Important lessons can be gained by studying the reigns of these few kings. And we will study the reign of just one today. This sermon is the next installment in my ongoing series, Great Lives of the Bible, that I began some months ago here in Charlotte. So far, I've delivered sermons on Paul's conversion, on Ruth, a singles Bible study on Hannah, and then a split sermon on Barnabas. The title of today's sermon is The Young Reformer. The Young Reformer. So let's take ourselves back into the 600s B.C., I want you to picture the Holy Land, the nation that captivated the people of the house of Israel were the Assyrians, and they were way up northeast, and the Assyrians were losing power to a rising kingdom nearby called the Neo-Babylonian kingdom. Egypt, which was to their southwest, was the ally of Assyria. And poor little Judah was sandwiched between these two major powers. And so if the armies passed from one towards the other, they would naturally come through the Holy Land. Because the Holy Land was on a land bridge between Africa and Asia. I'd like you, if you have ribbon markers in your Bible, to use them today. A couple would be handy. If you don't have ribbon markers, even a piece of paper or two. We're going to go to two primary passages and piece them together. So let's start in 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 1. First, I want to build some family history about this man. Let's start with his grandfather in 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 1. 2 Kings 21.1 Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Manasseh was born after good King Hezekiah's serious illness and extension of life. He was the son of Hezekiah, who was born in that extension of 15 years. That was the downside of God's extending Hezekiah's life out of mercy. But this boy turns into the worst king in the history of Judah. He became the epitome of evil. Guilty of the very sins that brought captivity to the northern house of Israel. He reigns 55 years, the longest reign of any king of either Judah or Israel. He is the grandfather of our hero. Verse 2, he did evil in the sight of the eternal according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He went back to the pagan religions of the peoples who inhabited the land prior to Israel's arrival. In verse 3, he built the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, raised up altars for Baal, made a wooden image, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He worshipped all the host of heaven. They were all worshipped by this king, and he served them. In verse 4, he also built altars in the house of the eternal, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. Let's go down now to verse 16. 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed 
very innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin, in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. This innocent blood were people who were often poor, underprivileged, probably including human sacrifice, as we'll see later, and perhaps martyrdom of God's own prophets. Because Jewish and Christian tradition hold that Manasseh had the prophet Isaiah sawn in half. Verse 18. 18. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Ammon is the father of our hero today. So let's read about him. Was he any different? We go down to verse 19. Ammon was 22 when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name is Meshulam, daughter of Haruz of Jobah. He did evil in the sight of eternal as his father Manasseh had done. He did not display the change of heart. His father Manasseh had later in life, as you read about that in Second King Chronicles 33, Manasseh has a change of heart. But this Ammon does not follow those changes that Manasseh had made. And he reversed the good changes that Manasseh had overturned, even during the end of his reign. And so we read, he did evil in the sight of the eternal. And he walked in all the ways, verse 21 that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. Forsook the Lord God of his fathers, did not walk in the ways of the eternal. And then his own servants conspired against him, 23, and killed him. And the people of the land then executed all the conspirators, and they made his son king in his place. His son, Josiah, our hero today, Josiah. Josiah becomes king. Leave your marker there. Let's go over to 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34, and we'll start in verse 1. 2 Chronicles 34, 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. This is the last reformation before the captivity of the house of Judah. And this boy grows up without his natural father. Verse 2, He did what was right in the sight of the Eternal and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. With all this negative influence from his grandfather's era, his father's era, how does he have a change of heart? We'll see later, because he has the influence of a godly mother and two prophets. Verse 3, for in the eighth year of his reign, all right, he's eight when he becomes king. His eighth year makes him how old? Easy arithmetic. He's 16, a teenager. Eighth year of his reign, while he's still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. David is always the model against which other kings are judged. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah. His twelfth year, he's 20 years old. He begins to purge the land of this enormous apostasy and evil of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. Began to purge the land. He wanted to consolidate worship in Jerusalem to prevent the rise of paganism once again. During his reign, Zephaniah tells us he prophesies early in Josiah's reign, and then Jeremiah starts to prophesy later in about his 13th year. These men and Josiah's mother have a godly influence on this boy that directs him towards God and away from the heathenism of his ancestors. He destroys the images, the King James margin says, sun images, pillars, incense altars to the sun. And he ground them up into dust reminding us that uh, they broke down the altars in verse 4, the altars of the Baals in his presence, the incense altars that were above. He cut down the wooden images, carved images, molded images, broken piece, made dust of them and scattered them on the graves of those who would sacrifice to them. Remember what Moses did to the 
the, um, uh, the golden calf after the exodus. He ground it up, <clears throat> put it into water, and made the worshipers drink it. Verse 5. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars, cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with Axis, the king of Judah, going into the territories of these tribes of the northern house. You see, after the house of Israel was carried into captivity, remnants of these people survived, and they're still there. And so, because Assyria is declining, Josiah takes advantage of the situation and moves back into the northern territory and starts cleaning house of its heathenism. He cuts down all of these idols with axes. And the chronicler's concern here is showing that in both territories, he is changing things for the better. Even the Simeonites, who were once of the house of Judah, had moved north apparently by that time. And then in verse 7, when he had broken down the altars and wooden images and beaten the carved images and the powder, cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, then he came back to Jerusalem. So he cleaned house out in the territories. Then he comes back to the capital city. And now he's going to clean house there. Let's go back to 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings 22. And we'll start in verse 1. 2 Kings 22, verse 1, we'll backtrack a little bit. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Verse 1, his mother's name was Jedidah. So we know her name. And when you read a woman's name, a mother's name in the Bible, it's significant. She has a godly influence in his life, no doubt. The daughter of Adaiah of Boscath. Her name means beloved, amiable, God's darling. And I want you to know, starting in verse 2, four steps to spiritual renewal in his life and in the lives of the people around him. Verse 2, he did what was right in the sight of the eternal and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn to the right nor to the left. This last godly king of the Davidic line prior to the exile of the house of Judah one of 20 kings who ruled Judah, most were evil, and he was raised by an ungodly father in contrast to his grandfather Manasseh, who was raised by a godly father. Josiah's name means something like, may Yahweh give, or Yahweh supports, or the fire of the eternal. And he, he breaks this long cycle of worthless monarchs. He's a light in a very dark age. He reigns from 640 to 609 B.C. And like his great-grandfather, Hezekiah, he instituted sweeping religious reforms throughout Judah and even into the remnants of the house of Israel. One of Judah's strongest spiritual leaders who served God with repentance, with humility, with obedience, and with devotion. And when it says he turned not aside, he is the only king of whom this is said. He's probably influenced by his mother and this godly prophet, Zephaniah. You see, outward reform begins with inward renewal. A leader must experience personal change before he or she can implement public change. Change in the lives of those who serve under him. So step number one, we see his personal change. And then in verse 3, it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah, he's now 26 years old, that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought to the house of eternal, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. This purging goes on <clears throat> from his age 20 up to about 26, but he's not done yet. And so in verse 5, let them deliver this money that the people have donated to deliver it to the hand of those doing the work, 
Who were the overseers of the house? Verse 5. Let them give it to those who were in the house of eternal doing the work to repair the damages of the house. You see, the people, when they saw a godly king, began to start donating again to the work, giving their tithes and offerings because they knew that money would be used wisely and properly. And so now he makes sure that money is passed on to the repairman, showing us how bad things were in Jerusalem that the temple needed repair because it had been neglected for so many years. And that's not all, as we will see later. So in verse 6, he gives to the carpenters and builders and masons. They buy timber, hewn stone to repair the house. And yet there was no need for accounting because they dealt faithfully. Verse 7. They were so trustworthy, he didn't even have to keep records. He trusted these men and women, no doubt, to rebuild it and to use the money for what it was intended. Verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. It's as if they had never read it before. Isn't that amazing? God's word was hidden in some dusty, dark corner of the temple. People had not read it, perhaps in generations. And there it's discovered by the high priest as they were cleaning out the mess. And so a word will come back to the king. Verse 9. So Shaphan, the scribe, went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money, found the house, delivered it in the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house. Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king, as if he had never heard it before. Twenty-six years old. Never heard the word of God like this. And so, as it happened, when the king heard the words of the book, the law, he tore his clothes. Tore his clothes. You see... His second step in this spiritual cleansing led to the way for repair of the house of eternal. He began to make personal changes before he could make a change within the house of God. And that's always the way it must be in God's church. Before a church can be repaired, personal lives have to get right with God. And so these workers are working trustfully. And then we find in verses 9 and 10, this third step, a return to the Word of God. The conventional reaction at that time when you were shocked and horrified by what you've learned was to tear your garments. And what did he read? He probably had read to him those passages about the curses from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And he knew what was coming upon his people for their lack of faithfulness to God. He tore his garments. But today... God, through Joel, says, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. So he says now, in verse 12, The king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, <clears throat> Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah a servant, of the king, go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and all Judah, concerning the words of this book that's been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that's been aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that's written concerning us. So in verse 14, <clears throat> Hilkiah the, the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to hold to the prophetess, the wife of Shalom the son of Tikvah, the son of Harvas, keeper, keepers of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Of these men that form a party that is sent by the king, four of those names have been found in archaeology, in seals, in clay envelopes, and it's interesting that fingerprints on the edge of one of them are suggested by some archaeologists as being those of this Ahikam mentioned here in verse 14. I don't know if that's the case, but that's what some think. 
It's interesting, this Ahikam later intervenes to save the life of the prophet Jeremiah. Who is Huldah? Verse 14, Huldah the prophetess, 104 named prophetesses in the Old Testament. <clears throat> there are at least 10 in the entire Bible. And she's the only prophetess mentioned in the history of these two kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Wife of Shalom, an official of either the royal court or the temple. So they go to her and she said to them, verse 15, Thus says the eternal God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, that's Josiah, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, 17, because they've forsaken me, burn incense to other gods, that they may provoke me to anger with all their works. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of all the eternal, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the eternal God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard because your heart was tender that is responsive humble fearful and you humbled yourself before the eternal when you heard what i spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they had become a desolation and a curse and you tore your clothes and you wept before me i also have heard you says eternal and surely therefore I will gather to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. That is, in a right relationship with God. He would die on right terms with God, but going on, your eyes shall not see the calamity which I will bring on this place. And so they brought word back to the king. God said, Josiah, because you are a righteous king, because of your actions, you won't live to see what's about to happen to this country. You will die in peace. Now, Josiah may have wondered if God might relent. There were times in the history of Israel when God revoked a pronounced judgment or postponed it. Can you think of any in the Old Testament? How about the story about Nineveh in the book of Jonah? And it's interesting that one of Josiah's contemporaries was Jeremiah, the prophet, who wrote this from God. If that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I brought uh, thought to bring upon it. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then the Lord will relent concerning the doom he's pronounced against you. So Josiah could be working on this premise. We will do what's right and leave the rest into God's hands. You and I, in a similar way, also know the outcome of the last stage of man's history. But we do what we can to proclaim God's truth to those who will heed. Josiah did not give up, nor must we. In fact, he stepped up his efforts to cleanse the land of idolatry. Because faithfulness to our task is far more important than trying to save the world, for we cannot. That is God's business. Our business is doing right, regardless of the odds. And spiritual greatness is measured by determination to use whatever power God enables us to have. It's not measured by ultimate success as the world looks at it. But because of his faithfulness, God spares Josiah the pain and grief of witnessing the coming disaster. And like Josiah, sometimes we face personal situations that seem impossible. And we wonder how any good can come out of it. But regardless, we must obey God and trust him to accomplish his will. Whether things get better right away or not. Because regardless... God requires us to be faithful to our task. God sees the end from the beginning. We do not. We can change ourselves, but changing the world is God's affair. Let's leave our marker there and go. Well, actually, we're going to continue on in chapter 23. All right, chapter 23, verse 1. 
Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And the king went up to the house of eternal with the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and the people, small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which have been found in the house of the eternal. He read. He took that responsibility in order to get the sound to reach all those gathered people. No doubt he had others assist him to relay the word. You see, he did not keep the word of God to himself. He had to share this with his nation, with his people. And so the book of the covenant is now being read to his own people. And he stands by a pillar to represent his dynamic, dynastic rather, authority. And we read in verse 3, He made a covenant before the eternal to follow him, keep his commandments, testimonies, statutes. Notice, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And like leader, like people. All the people took a stand for the covenant. So now... They're repenting. They're changing. They're overcoming because of the example of this godly young king, 26 years old. And he had the power to make sweeping changes. He was king after all. And most of us today are not kings and queens. At least I'm not. But we can still make an influence in the lives of others. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, verse 4, the priest of the second order, the doorkeeper's to bring out of the temple of the eternal all the articles that were made for Baal. Yeah, that's what was going on in God's temple. Worship of Baal. And Asherah. You know what an Asherah was? A wooden sacred post phallus symbol for a Canaanite goddess. I'll not go into further detail about what went on, but this was religious worship in the heathen religions. And all the hosts of the heaven were worshipped in the temple. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, carried their ashes to Bethel. Remember Bethel? One of the two places where when the house of Israel split from the house of Judah, their king Jeroboam set up golden calves. Yeah, Bethel. He carries them to defile this place of pagan worship. And he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense. You know what that word for idolatrous priest is in Hebrew? I'll try to pronounce it. Kemarim, men appointed by men, priests appointed by men, not the Kohen who were appointed by God. In the Greek, the Hebrew word Kemarim means black-robed, black-robed. God's priests wore white robes. And so, verse 5, these kings who ordained or set aside these men, rather, for that office were probably Manasseh and Ammon, his ancestors, forefathers. And so they worshipped Baal, verse 5, the sun, the moon, the constellations, all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the eternal, this Asherah, which Hezekiah had removed, was reintroduced by Manasseh. And now Josiah removes it again from the house of eternal to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook, ground it to ashes, threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Verse 7, he tore down the ritual booths. The ritual booths, verse 7, houses of the perverted persons. Hebrew, Kedeshim. Male, cult, prostitutes, King James Version calls them sodomites. Sacred prostitution. We think what's going on in our culture is something new. It's not new. This was religious worship, folks. He cleans house, isn't he? And he cleans out in verse 7 the hangings which were hung over the Asherah. Verse 8, 
And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense, from Geba to Beersheba, from north to south of his territory. He broke down the high places at the gates, which were in the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were left to the left of the city gate. Verse 9. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate the unleavened bread that was the sacred Bread that was formed some of the priestly provisions. And he defiled Topheth, verse 10. Topheth, first time in the Bible. The valley of Hinnom, southwest of the city of David. Where altars were set up for child sacrifice. This is what's going on in the kingdom of Judah before Josiah becomes king. Child sacrifice. For this God, Molech, of the nearby tribes, to pass through the fire to Molech. Yes, Molech was proud. Verse 11. And then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. These horses may have been used to pull chariots bearing images of sun gods in religious processions. Small images of horses have recently been found in these cult places outside Jerusalem and Hatzor. In ancient times, the sun was frequently depicted as a charioteer who daily drove his horses across the sky. Horses were dedicated to it throughout the east, right here in Jerusalem as well. And so in verse 12, the altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the king of Judah had made, the altars which Manasseh had made, the two courts of the house of eternal, the king broke down and pulverized them through their dust in the brook. Kidron, dedicated worshiping the starry host up on the roof of the temple. 13. Then the king defiled the high places east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption. You recognize where that is? Well, you might recognize it by this name, the Mount of Olives. But that's what it's being called this time because of its idolatries. Heathen temples had stood there for generations, going back to the time when Solomon built high places for the gods, Chemosh and Molech there for his foreign wives. That's how far back this went. And Josiah cleans house. The amount of corruption which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the God, abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. 14, he broke in pieces the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images, filled their places with the bones of men. That was to defile these pagan altars so they could not be reused. Moreover, the altar which was at Bethel, verse 15, where the golden calf had been set up by Jeroboam, in the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, both that altar and the high place, he broke down, burned the high place, crushed it to powder, burned the wooden image. And I want you to notice something here in verse 16, which is very important to Bible history and Bible prophecy. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar, defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed who proclaimed these words. His burning bones on this pagan altar were according to the word of the man of God? What's this? You see, when Jeroboam set up his golden calves, one at Bethel, a man of God came and gave this prophecy. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar, thus says eternal, 
Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born in the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. That man of God gave that prophecy about Josiah by name about 300 years before he was born. And it came to pass exactly as God had prophesied. 17. So Josiah said, What gravestone is this that I see? So the man of the city told him, It's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah. And proclaim these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. He said, Leave him alone. Let no one move his bones. So they let the bones alone, the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. He goes back into the northern territories to clean house, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. And he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars. He burned men's bones on them and returned to Jerusalem. And then the king commanded all the people saying, Keep. Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Now, where did they read about the Passover? Well, of course, it was in the book of the covenant. And when they kept reading, they came across a passage and they noticed, we haven't been keeping the Passover. So, leave your marker there and now go to Second Chronicles 35. Because a much more thorough account is here given in Second Chronicles 35 about this outstanding Passover. Second Chronicles 35, starting verse 1. Verse 1. Now Josiah kept a Passover to the eternal in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. Did you catch that? For timing of when is Passover? Yeah, 14th, first month. Chronicles gives a longer account than Kings. None of this material was found in Second Kings except the last two verses. This is 622 B.C., Josiah is 26 years old. This is one of ten Passover observances in the Bible. And it's the first centralized worship of Passover since before the Israelites had conquered the promised land. Because he invites these remnants of the house of Israel to come down and worship with them. And in verse 2, he set the priests in their duties. He encouraged them for the service of the house of eternal. And he said to the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the eternal, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden to your shoulders. Serve the Lord your God and his people, Israel. You see, the duties of the Levites were to teach. Verse 3, the Levites who taught all Israel. But too often they neglected teaching for ritual. He says, get back to your primary duty. Be the teachers of these people. Teach them from this book, the Word of God. That's what a faithful minister will do today. And he says, bring back in the Holy Ark. Apparently it had been removed, maybe to protect it from Manasseh and Ammon, who would no doubt want to destroy it. And that's the last time we read about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And he says, serve the Lord your God. Verse 4, prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and Solomon, his son. There were 24 divisions of the priests, so they would serve in a rotational basis, about two weeks each. Verse 5, and stand in the holy place, according to the divisions of the father's houses of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the father's house of the Levites. And so slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, prepare them for your brethren, that they may do according to the word of eternal by the hand of Moses. 
From here on, the priests do the slaughtering of the Passover lambs by contrast to the original Passover in the book of Exodus. This seems to be the transition mentioned here. And he talks about the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses, not by four imaginary authors of a documentary hypothesis. And verse 7. Then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from their, his flock, from the flock, all the Passover offerings from all who were present, to the number of 30,000. That would suffice to be enough Passover lambs for perhaps hundreds of thousands of people. Going by a later tradition of one lamb per ten people, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were the king's possessions. Now Josiah generously donates to provide these sacrificial animals for this special Passover observance. And look what it does. It influences people around him. His leaders gave willingly, verse 8, to the people, to the priests, to the Levites, naming them, rulers, and then some of their brothers in verse 9. They're all donating, donating generously. His generosity and example has rubbed off on others who follow his lead. He's become a model, a mentor. Verse 10, so the service was prepared. Verse 11, they slaughtered the Passover. Animals, the priests sprinkled the blood. They did it according to the book of Moses, verse 12. Verse 13, they roasted the Passover offerings with fire. But the other holy offerings they boiled in pots. And afterward they prepared, verse 14, portions for themselves. And those who were busy with other duties, they would help them out, share the load. Verse 14. Then we have the musicians restored in verse 15, who had been established by David, had not sung in generations. Now they're back in office, carrying on their duty to bring music into the temple for this Passover service. And the gatekeepers, verse 15, are put back on duty. The Levites prepared portions for them. 16. And so all the service of eternal was prepared the same day to keep the Passover, to offer burnt offerings on the altar of eternal according to the command of King Josiah. Now, I want you to notice verse 17. The children of Israel who were present, kept the Passover at that time, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Did you catch that? Verse 17. Two separate festivals, back to back, not combined. Passover, then Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was still that case at that time. And then 18. There have been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept. With the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What a regrettable account that is. That's how far they had drifted from God. Think, God had been patient. All those hundreds of years sending prophets, appealing to them to come back. And they they had ignored them, even killed them. Verse 19, in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, when he's 26, this Passover was kept. And after all this, when Josiah prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates And Josiah went out against him. What is this? What's happening here? Well, back to verse 19. In the 18th year, this Passover is kept. That's the same year they discovered the book of the law in the temple. So they read about the Passover, and he instantly implemented these necessary changes. But before they observed the Passover, just like you and me, They purged the land of the evil practices. He was examining himself. And he cleansed the land from top to bottom, even went into former northern territory. Mr. Rod McNair on the first of what he gave us a sermon about 
idols of the heart. That's what Ezekiel prophesied. He said, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired at all by them? Josiah wanted to cleanse the land so thoroughly that he could banish the idols from the hearts as well. Let's read about his death now in 2 Kings 23, verse 22. 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 22. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges. Samuel was the last of the judges who judged Israel. Nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. The most outstanding Passover in all those years in both kingdoms. Verse 22. And now 23. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the eternal in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums. That was demonology. Spiritists, household gods, these were the teraphim, the portable house gods, and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of a law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of eternal. This is the next verse, is a verse worth marking. Now before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul, and all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Remember, that's what God said back in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this young man did. Those of you of that age, you can serve God like Josiah with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And notice how Josiah accomplished this reformation. First, personal renewal. Then personal change. Then public change is implemented. And then there's public reform that goes throughout the land. This godly king had the power to wield, and he wielded it righteously. 26. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations which, with which Manasseh had provoked him. The judgment against Judah in Jerusalem was only postponed during the reign of <coughs> Josiah. It was not rescinded. Manasseh's apostasy was a permanent infection, according to these verses, even though he later has a change of heart, as you read in Chronicles. But it was far too, the nation was far too gone. And even then, Josiah's reform seemed quickly to slip away upon his death. In 27, the Lord said, I will remove Judah from my sight as I removed Israel. I will cast off Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I have built, which I said, my name shall be there. Judah, Jerusalem, the temple would all go and be lost. And this occurs in 597 B.C. Let's go now back to Second Chronicles 35 and verse 20. So let's read about the actual battle. What's going on here? Well, we're now back into what I said at the beginning of the sermon. Egypt, Assyria, Neo-Babylonian kingdoms, a little kingdom of Judah caught in the middle, these warring powers going back and forth across his territory. Second Chronicles 35, verse 20. And after all this, when Josiah prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. Necho ruled 
in Egypt, 610 to 595 B.C. And Necho's object was to not fight with Josiah. He was trying to go and aid his ally, the Assyrians, against the Babylonians that had moved west and were threatening Syria and Judah. And Necho worried these forces would eventually work their way down and be a threat to Egypt itself. And so they do battle at Haran. But along the way, Josiah goes out against him and delays him. You see, the Egyptian army is moving up the way of the sea into the Holy Land. The Via Maris, which took them through the pass at Megiddo, eastern end, that brought them to the Jezreel Valley. And that valley was ideal for Egyptian chariots with lots of room to maneuver. And why Josiah attacked them is a mystery. Josiah went out. Nowhere do we read that King Josiah sought God's will in the matter, except we know from what God had said earlier. He had warned his kings to not become entangled in political alliances, but to trust him. Because to have lovers, as he called these alliances and allies, was considered political adultery by God. God wanted his kings to trust him, not their allies. In fact, with one king of Judah, Asa, God said this, because you've relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped your hand. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you've done foolishly, he tells Asa, and therefore from now on you shall have wars. It's sad that Josiah does this. But nonetheless, God will accomplish his will for Josiah in that he will not live to see the captivity upon the house of Judah. Perhaps Josiah wanted to oppose Necho's army through the pass of Megiddo because he feared the growth of either Egypt or Assyria that would threaten the independence of his own kingdom. We just we don't know. It's a mystery. But in verse 21, he sent messengers to him. That is, Necho sends messengers to Josiah who amasses his army to oppose him. He says, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? I've not come out against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. That's... Babylon, for God commanded me to make haste. So refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. And this is unique in this version here in Chronicles. Pharaoh Necho was not an enemy of Judah at this point. He had no intention of conquering Judah. But Josiah goes out against him. Refrain from meddling from God or with God. It's interesting that nowhere does Scripture condemn Nico for saying these words. In fact, as we will soon see, God apparently was speaking through him. It's what the some call spontaneous prophecy. Even a foreign king can be used by God if he wants to convey a message. But verse 22 Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so he would might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho, notice, from the mouth of God. And so he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. He disguised himself like kings Ahab and Jehoshaphat had. It does not go well. This Megiddo, Har Megiddo, will later become known as Armageddon. 23. And the archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. And his servants therefore took him out of that chariot, put him a second that he had, brought him to Jerusalem, so he died, and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem Mourned for Josiah. This is unique to the version in Chronicles. Upon his death, this reformation ebbs away, sadly, regrettably. 
In a few short years, the house of Judah begins to be taken apart by the Neo-Babylonians. Josiah seems to become sidetracked by this ill-advised campaign. You see, he was 39 when this happened. There was a 13-year gap that something we were not told about. We have so little information that is only hinted at by prophets like Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And why he goes out at the age of 39 against this Pharaoh Nico is still a mystery. And he dies at this young age of 39. He's buried with full honors in the royal tombs of the city of David. It's ironic that one of the best kings of Judah was killed in a disguise very similar to Ahab, perhaps the worst king of Israel. Nonetheless, his death was had been pronounced by Huldah the prophetess. And we do read this, which gives us some comfort. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. That's what Isaiah had said. And his death marks the end, the beginning of the end for Judah. But God used Josiah's mistake to spare him the judgment of living to see the captivity of the house of Judah. Josiah delayed Necho enough that sealed the fate of Assyria, which was defeated by the Babylonians. And Babylon will defeat Egypt and Assyria in 605 B.C., and then Jerusalem and Judah in 597. Josiah does not live to see it. But do you know who did? Who lived through that punishment? The prophet Jeremiah. And he writes about it in his books. So verse 25, Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah, And to this day, all the singing men, the singing women, speak of Josiah and their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Jeremiah had high esteem for Josiah. These laments are no longer extant. But the failure of Josiah's reformation was not due to his own shortcomings, but the apostasy of the people under his grandfather Manasseh. As God had said in 2 Kings 23, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his wrath, with which his anger was aroused against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel. He reigned 31 years, dies at 39, so in 26 Verse 26, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to that which is written in the book of the eternal, the law of the eternal. His deeds from first to last, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Perhaps the very books you and I are reading right now. What takeaway lessons can we gain from the life of this young king? Number one, Remember that Josiah's father died when he was eight. He grew up without his natural father. And it was likely a sorrowful childhood with scenes all around him in a dangerous time. I mean, his father had been killed by conspirators. No doubt his life was under danger and threat as well. An age of violence, intrigue, and civil war. He grew up without his dad. Perhaps... Sadly, regrettably, that's also been true for you. But he had a godly mother, Jedida, beloved, amiable, God's darling. And the way Josiah turns out indicates that she was an outstanding mother who pointed him towards God instead of going along with the prevailing paganism. She raised that boy without her husband, and she pointed him to God, no doubt, as did Zephaniah, and Jeremiah later in his life. And we read in our story 
He began to serve God at eight, but he really starts to seek him seriously at the age of 16 as a teenager, forsaking the ways of his grandfather, Manasseh, and father Ammon, using David as his role model. He sought God early in life. Brethren, young people, seek God early in life. Don't wait till some imagined age when you will get serious and knuckle down and begin to serve God. Seek God early in life, even if you do not live in a godly home. God called my wife and me when we were teenagers. We were not raised in God's church. And I've met a number of people who also came into God's church as teenagers. God works with teenagers. Continue to seek God, even as Josiah did. He continued what he began. And that can be difficult at times when you're on your own as a teenager. But be faithful, like Josiah was. You'll be tempted to think it's not going to work, but trust God. Next, we read that he obeyed the word of God, even though he lived in an evil age, just like you and me. He did what God said. Regardless of the world around him, he was going to make changes in his life and all those he could potentially influence. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem when he was only 20. And it goes on for at least six years. There's a difference between doing right in the sight of people and doing right in the sight of God. And he chose the latter, thankfully. When the word of God was discovered and read, he continued to obey the word, and he made sure it was conveyed to God's people who were assembled. Then he goes and seeks counsel of the wise spiritual leaders, like Huldah the prophetess, Zechariah, or I should say Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. These people influenced him, and he in turn influenced others for good. And then we read, he began to repair the house of God, rebuild the temple. Following the word, when it was discovered and implemented, then God's house was restored. And that will be true in any history, any age of God's church of God. Following the word will restore the church. We live in a time when the Word of God is buried and forgotten. Even though we have millions of copies of it all across the land, around the world. Because, you see, it's not faithfully preached in the pulpits of our land, at least not most of them. Instead, today, what's popular is a feel-good, health and wealth, psychology babble. But it's an empty shell. and leaves people without the truth, without knowledge of what's required by God. Josiah humbles himself and he appeals to God's mercy. He reigns these short 31 years, dies at 39. He is deeply mourned, but he left a godly spiritual legacy that is part of our Bible, and you and I have been privileged to read it today. God worked through Josiah just as he will work through us. They enjoyed the greatest Passover in hundreds of years, even greater than that of his great-grandfather Hezekiah, who also implemented a great reformation. It was an outstanding character, this king. So young people, you can make an impact for God, just as Josiah did, for the people of your time. Your age. He cleansed the land. He brought about massive reforms that brought the people back to God, at least until he died, because he was faithful to his mission. He had a mission, and he lived up to it. And God blessed him for it. You and I, even though we know what's determined for our peoples because of our national sins, we're still accountable to God to fulfill our mission preaching the gospel to those who will listen, to those who will respond, just as Josiah did. Somehow in all of this, the greater plan of the God of history 
is implemented. He judges us for our faithfulness to the task. Changing world events is God's business. But all of us, young and old, can serve God as did Josiah. As we read, with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and all of our might. That's what was said about Josiah. He served God with all his heart, soul, and might. And we can too. So make a difference for God in your time.